0: Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Starr, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe.
1: And I'm Brenna.
0: And our show is located on the ancestral lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805
1: and on the Tecumloopste Sequepin territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sequepin And today's text, Jeff Barnaby's film Rhymes for Young Ghouls, takes place on the fictional Red Crow Reserve, which is located in Mi'kma'ki territory, also known as the Maritime Provinces, and the Gaspé region of Quebec. The film itself was shot in Gananaque, Quebec, which is Mohawk and Haudenosaunee territory. The day I found my mother dead, I aged by a thousand years.
0: If you're good at one thing, apply it to everything.
1: Where'd she learn how to do all that? You can turn anything into an art form. You were supposed to take care of her, Burner, not her take care of you. You even know your girl, man? She's gonna be eating people after the apocalypse. This is what brings my people together. The art of forgetfulness. And set up. We need to figure out a way to get this money back. So we're gonna break into St. D's and rob Popper. But he let us in on your little plan to break into the school. Congratulations, you're in. Joe, Mm -hmm. I am so glad we are talking about this film today, and I'm also super sad to watch this film and realize there will be no more Jeff Barnaby films.
0: Yeah. So, folks, this is our first episode of 2023. Happy New Year to those of you who celebrate. Hello. Brenna and I... Brett and I are technically celebrating this as the end of our recording season for 2022. So sadly, we have not yet gone on a holiday break, which will maybe come through in <laughs> how tired we sound and so on.
1: But Joe, all these people listening from the future will know how rested we are now. So that's there exciting to think about. <laughs>
0: yeah, Yeah. Um so excuse us if we confuse the dates, but yeah, yeah, this... This one hurts a little bit, Brenna. I mean, Mm -hmm. Jeff Barnaby was a Canadian filmmaker who was really active in genre filmmaking. And I'm sad to report that there aren't a lot of those who are also making films on like a wider release schedule. So like he was definitely a super important voice. His films were really well respected. He was, by all accounts, just a fantastic and really supportive gentleman in the industry And he sadly passed away last year. And so we have like, basically a handful of his works. And I'm glad to say that we get to talk about this one, because it is very distinctively YA.
1: Yes, absolutely. We have a young teenage protagonist. And, you know, in many ways, it's a very traditionally structured YA story. We've got absent parents we've Mm -hmm. got um sort of a chosen one type narrative of the person Mm -hmm. who can kind of avenge the the family and cultural traumas like in many ways it's really archetypical and also wow does it ever go some places that i was not personally expecting
0: Uh Yeah, Yeah. so folks, uh, if you're coming to this new and you haven't watched the film yet, we're just going to do some content warning for some like really triggering stuff, particularly if you do identify as indigenous. I could only imagine how upsetting this film is, but like we're talking about generational trauma. We're talking about residential schools. We're talking about uh, murder, addiction, uh, attempted rape, just like. All of the really difficult stuff just kind of compacted into a single really well done movie, Mm -hmm. but also very difficult to watch.
1: I just want to add that there is um, a death by suicide and also some uh, violence around alcohol abuse and Mm -hmm. um, child endangerment. So just if those are areas of concern for you, you should be aware of that going in. Mm hmm. Like a lot of the things that we're noting as triggers sort of are set up in the very early part of the film. And one thing that yeah. um, really struck me is the, the thoughtful and nuanced way the characters are developed and the non-gratuitous nature of the violence. I think it all sort of is contextual and, mm-hmm. you know, it makes a lot of sense in the context of it being, I mean, ultimately this is a vengeance film, right? Yeah. And so. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that the violence is gratuitous beyond the kind of narrative purpose of the violence, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I have seen people say that this is a really challenging, really difficult, very confrontational film. I would argue it's a rageful film. Mm -hmm. And I think that plays into the vengeance aspect that you're talking about. But one thing I don't feel is that this is like, this is not an exploitation, nor is it an exploitative film. Mm -hmm. And I think that you know, if we want to circle back to the origins of the pod, this is something akin to good representation. Like Mm -hmm. this is an own voices narrative. And while Jeff Barnaby, you know, identified as a man, and we obviously have a female protagonist in Ayla, I think that Barnaby is speaking to a lot of truths and also stereotypes that have plagued the indigenous community, specifically within Canada.
1: Yeah, I think maybe I should tell everybody what the film is about in case they haven't seen it. Yeah, let do the thing we
0: normally do. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm, But I really do recommend checking it out if you haven't seen it. And I think we mentioned this last week, but you can watch it on Gem in Canada. So, you know, it's a a freebie on the streamer and it's really worth your time. It's also a compact little movie at 88 minutes, Mm -hmm. which... Lord knows, Joe. (laughs) We could use more sub 90-minute films, I think. I just think it's a nice, tight film.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're saying this after we ended 2022 with a two-hour and 20-minute film. So yes, there's something to be said for (laughs) economical storytelling that still packs a punch.
1: There is. Okay. So the film is set in 1976, as I already mentioned, on the fictional Red Crow reservation. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's set within Mi'kmaq community, Jeff Barnaby himself is a Mi'kmaq filmmaker. So the film is set in 1976, but it actually opens in 1969 mm-hmm. with a child, Ayla, living with her dad and mom, and there's this very traumatic event that happens right at the beginning um, where a little boy named Tyler, it's her it's Ayla's brother, he's killed um when his parents are driving drunk, mm-hmm. effectively trying to leave a party. Ayla's mother can't cope with the grief, and she ultimately um, ends her life by suicide. Joseph ends up taking the blame. That's her father. He takes the blame, and he goes to prison. And Mm -hmm. so,
0: and this all happens in, like, 24 hours. Like, death at the party, the next day, wake up, mom is dead, and then dad gets taken off to jail.
1: And importantly, Ayla is a witness to everything. Ayla's a witness Mm -hmm. to Tyler's death. She also is the one who finds her mom, and while she sees her mom, she is... Uh, You know, in her peripheral vision, seeing her father being taken away by the police. So, yeah, lots of lots of trauma right there for Ayla. Set within the context of the fact that what overlooks the community is this residential school. Like you can Mm -hmm. see it from everywhere in the town and everyone in the town knows that you either send your kids there or you pay a bribe to the Indian agent so that he doesn't take your kids there. Those are your only options. And so, you know, there's a lot of like selling and buying of drugs. There's a lot of theft. There's a lot of kind of property crime. And these are all tying back to the idea of like paying off this Indian agent to try to keep particularly in this case, Ayla protected.
0: Right. And everybody who isn't doing that is engaging in what's called the art of forgetfulness, which basically means doing everything you can to suppress the generational trauma of being sent off to residential school. And Brenna, I wonder, can we pause the plot here just to educate anyone who doesn't know what a residential school is?
1: Yeah, so for our American listeners, um, this is a similar phenomenon to Indian boarding schools in Mm -hmm. your country. Um, Here, we called them residential schools. They were a structure of the state to remove Indigenous children from their family. The idea being that they could be, quote unquote, civilized by being raised primarily by church run schools that were funded by the state. I think sometimes we think of these schools as like a piece of ancient history, but it should be noted Mm -hmm. that the last school in Canada closed in 1996. So, Joe, I was 13 when the last school closed. Um, These are very much a part of the lived memory of all They should be the lived memory of all of us, but they are certainly mm. still impacting Indigenous communities to this day. And one of the things that we are currently wrestling with, a way in which I think the film is quite forward-thinking. Yeah.
0: Very, yeah.
1: Yeah, is that it's come – I don't know how to phrase this, really. It has come to light in a way that white people have paid attention to recently uh. <laughs> that there were a lot of children who died in residential schools. The reality is that Indigenous people have been telling that story for generations.
0: Yeah.
1: And the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was effectively blocked from doing the research to find out how many children were killed in residential schools. So, you know, we tend to frame this as like, this is a thing that we've just found out about it. The reality Mm -hmm. is that settlers are only just starting to listen. Um, And Barnaby is really foreshadowing that, you know, we have this graveyard in the woods outside Mm. of the school. We have this sort of constant sense of death and trauma and destruction. And I think visually it's so fascinating the way Barnaby has this school you know, we tend to think of residential schools as being far away. And that certainly was the case for lots and lots of communities. Um, but here, the fact that, like, everyone knows the school is right there, they can see it, mm-hmm. the source of this trauma in the community is kind of like looming. And it it it's almost like the monster of the monster film, right? The way it's sort of always present.
0: Yeah. And folks, we have talked about this sort of in passing in other texts, like Basically, anytime we cover Indigenous content, it gets raised. And I think, Brenna, you even mentioned that you drive by Mm -hmm. the former residential school in your community on your commute.
1: I used to, yeah. So my son's daycare was like on the other side of it. And so on a nine-minute commute every day, yeah, I drove right past. And and I think that that's a really important piece. You know, Barnaby talks about the willful forgetting that happens Mm -hmm. in Indigenous communities around Uh, alcohol and drugs, I think that settler communities have been guilty of intentional ignorance and pretending that we can't see these things, which are very present within our communities still. And I Mm -hmm. think that that's part of the challenge of this film from Barnaby is like, forcing audiences to look.
0: Yeah, yeah, because there were thousands, like- Mm -hmm possibly even like hundreds of thousands of kids who were killed over the course of the history when the residential school system was open across Canada. And one of the things Brenna is alluding to is that even just in the last couple of years, we all feigned shock when they discovered mass graves all across the country. And it was like, oh, wow, how did we not know this was a thing? And yes, indigenous people were like, um, hello, Mm -hmm. we have told you about this forever. Mm -hmm. But not everyone was killed. When we're talking about uh, trauma, there's entire generations of indigenous people who have either lost their language, uh, they've lost their connection to community, or they were irreparably abused physically, emotionally, and yes, sexually, all of which are either alluded to or depicted in this film. But it's like, if you knew anyone who went to a residential school, they were traumatized, and then it just seeps into successive generations. And that's what we're really seeing with Ayla and her parents. Like, her parents are the ones who were harmed, technically. And then she suffers all of the fallout as a result because she effectively doesn't have parents.
1: Well, yeah, that's exactly it, right? The purpose of the residential school is to disrupt the family structure, and it mm-hmm. worked. And, you know, we've seen that history continue on. And I think the film's choice to be set in 76 is really careful. I think it's clever Mm -hmm. because it's not the distant past, right? It's the recent past. um, And it forces us to sort of think about what we have been alive to, what we've been sort of conscious about. I found it really affecting to think of it as being set only, you know, what, 40 years ago?
0: Well, and I think interestingly enough, Barnaby doesn't go ostentatious with his set design or his costuming to the point where I watched this with Brian, my husband, and he turned to me at a couple of different points. Like we both saw the opening time card and then the seven year jump card. and. I think midway through, we had to remind ourselves because it feels like it could have been set in the 90s, in the early 2000s, even into the 2010s. Like, there's nothing so showy about this that you're like, oh, flared pants. Okay, yeah, 70s. So, it still feels incredibly contemporary.
1: Yeah, it totally does. I agree with that 100%. Okay, so when the film fast forwards to 1976, we see that Ayla is effectively running her father's drug dealing business. Mm-hmm. Um Technically, her uncle Berner is supposed to be looking after her, but really, he just kind of leaves her to run wild. But she doesn't run wild. She runs business, basically. Um, oh, yeah.
0: She, she has a good head on her shoulders. She is very much like a strong, capable girl who is... More or less an adult because, I mean, Burner is such an interesting parental figure because he totally trusts her, but he also uses her because he recognizes that if an adult was running the business, they would be put away for jail, whereas she can kind of get away scot-free because she's underage.
1: Yeah, and she's using the proceeds to bribe her way out of having to go to the residential school. Mm -hmm. But Popper, who is the Indian agent in town, you know, one of the things I read a lot of in the reviews was like, could a figure like Popper have existed? I think it's important <laughs> yes. to know that yes. Like,
0: he is representative of <laughs> these people.
1: Yes. And this, this sort of Indian agent within the community who's, who represents the state, who takes the children to residential school, like, this is a historical figure. This is a person, mm-hmm. a job that existed. Yes, and so, you know, we get a little bit of Popper's backstory. He had been bullied by Mi'kmaq youth in the community, including Burner. So, you know, he's got this, like, hate on, even though other kids in the community, like Ala's father, Joseph, actually tried to become friends with him. Anyway, so all this gives him sort of this motivation and a backstory.
0: I will confess, I don't know that I needed that.
1: I didn't need it. I really didn't. Mm-hmm. I like that it shows that, you know... Popper doesn't see any distinction between a guy like Joseph and a guy like Berner, right? Yes. So like Joseph who tries to do good but is sort of circumscribed by his situation. Mm-hmm. There's nothing different between him and the kids who would beat up Popper as far as Popper is concerned and I think that that is a useful piece of the narrative but yeah. um yeah, I didn't I didn't need to feel sorry for
0: <laughs> Popper. I don't need sympathy for this dude. No. no
1: not at all <laughs> so the action of the plot really begins when Ayla's drug money is stolen and it seems to be some sort of an inside job right like popper mm-hmm. is basically being bribed and also stealing the bribe money so that he can put Ayla in care like in, mm-hmm. and I shouldn't say in care so that he can abduct her and take her to the residential school like that's there we the go plan yep. um so her she and her two best friends Sholo and Agnes make this plan to break into the residential school and steal her money. But, uh, yeah, Burner betrays them to Popper and mm-hmm. uh, Joseph gets arrested and Ayla gets sent to the residential school. And there's this very affecting, very historically resonant Ooh, scene boy. where Ayla's long braids are cut off, which mm-hmm. is one of the practices that happened when kids went to the residential schools what ends up happening though <laughs> is this sort of like heist movie set yeah. within the walls of the residential school where the kids end up both freeing Joseph and getting their $20,000 by filling the um <laughs> filling the water system with human feces so that when because they know that Popper at night, I mean it's grotesque Popper at night molests the boys and then he Mm -hmm. goes and takes a shower and so instead of showering with clear cool water he is showered in S-H-I-T Mm -hmm. and you think that that's it that they've escaped but then Popper catches up to them and he attacks Ayla's father, he attempts to rape Ayla in one of the most (sighs) horrifying, tense, upsetting scenes in the film, I think. But he is actually shot by a little boy who picks up mm-hmm. his gun and shoots him. Um, and we end the film almost where we began. Joseph takes the blame for yeah. killing Popper, even though just like with Tyler, he's not actually the person who who pulled the trigger or who ran the car. Nope. Ayla goes to live with her a friend of her grandfather's who will hopefully give her more Guidance than she's had up to this point, and then Juji, the little boy who is the one who actually killed Popper, becomes friends with Ayla, and so you're left with this sense at the end of the film that there are relational reparations, reconnections, like that there has been a disruption to the cycle of trauma that's happened to these kids, and that you mm-hmm. know maybe through through intimate family relationships they'll be able to heal.
0: It's interesting, I. I saw a lot of people say basically what you just said, and I don't know that I entirely agree with that. Like, yes, there's the insinuation that she has this $20,000 and that she's not going to be involved in the drug business. But to me, this is not a happy ending. Oh, I don't think
1: it's a happy ending, but I don't think it's a tragic ending for Ayla either. And I think that's important. Like, Mm -hmm. part of what's happening in this film is something that should really unsettle settlers, which is that... Violence against oppressive colonizers is cleansing and healing. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) (laughs) And like, I think that's a really important part. So yeah, I I would not go so far as to say happy ending. But I do think we leave with some sense of Ayla's capability for the future different than we open the film with. There's a tragedy here though, right? Which is that ultimately, like, I mean, Joseph is this tragic figure who Uh just kind of keeps sacrificing himself. But I I don't think we feel about his sacrifice at the end of the film the same way we felt about the one at the beginning, and I think that's important.
0: Right. Yeah. I think for Ayla maybe there's a bit of a glimmer of hope, but also she does have to deal with the fact that she still doesn't really have any family. Like, her uncle sold her out, her father's in jail. I mean, yeah, she's got this new parental figure, but it's not a blood relation, which I appreciate is also different for Indigenous people, where it's almost like a found family kind of sense of community in a lot of practice. But, you know, she she had this grandmother figure, Ceres, that she would buy drugs from, and Ceres was killed by Popper, and To me, there's the implied horribleness that the residential school system is still at the top of the hill. It will continue to be there. All the other kids who are in there are still going to be abused and punished by these priests and nuns. And we will just get a new Indian agent who will hypothetically restart the cycle. That's not me trying to be super dark and cynical, but it's like...
1: No, but it's interesting that that Barnaby doesn't choose to show us that, right? True. Like I yes. expected the film to end with the new Indian agent rolling into town.
0: Mm, that would have been so grim, huh?
1: Right, and it's so it, it doesn't, which doesn't. You're totally right that it doesn't mean he doesn't exist. But I also think this is a key component in the timing of 1976 because. I know I said the last school closed in 1996, and that's true. But throughout mm-hmm. the 70s and 80s, there was a decommissioning of these schools. Right. Um, so it's an interesting choice temporally because it's ambiguous, right? Like, right. is a new Indian agent rolling it down, or
0: or will this place be shut down as part yeah. of the decommissions? Yeah.
1: Yeah, you don't know, and I think I think it's right that you don't know. Like, I think any tidy ending would be inappropriate here Mm -hmm. but i do i gotta say i do really like the idea of cleansing violence in this context and i think it's like it's really powerful that ayla has all the agency even Mm -hmm. if we're uncertain of her whatever her conclusion is going to be
0: yeah it's interesting i mean i know that you don't like a lot of horror films and obviously i do Uh, This often gets classified not just as a YA. In fact, more people actually classify it as a bit of a thriller slash horror film. And I think it's horror in terms of like thematics and characters Mm -hmm. like Popper is a full blown villain. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But there is something to me that's slightly reminiscent of like almost a rape revenge narrative. Thankfully, we don't have a rape in this film. And I think that's actually another strong positive in the film's sort of arsenal. Mm-hmm. But there is something incredibly cathartic about watching indigenous characters overcome their oppressors and get vengeance. Like, And it embodies the same kind of characteristics where you see somebody who has been marginalized, who has been hurt, who has been traumatized, and you get to see them find that strength. And I know some people quibble with the fact like, oh, it shouldn't have to come through violence and Mm -hmm. other things. But I think the reality is, is that there is something incredibly cathartic about that.
1: Well, you know, decolonial theory, there are different approaches to decolonial theory, but Mm -hmm. there is certainly a school that argues that decolonization is always inherently violent because you are upending systems. Mm -hmm. And you can't upend systems in a friendly way because people don't give up power (laughs) gently. (laughs) (laughs) right like i think there's this sense in canada that we're waiting for
0: we want someone else to do the the hard work
1: well and like there's this sense that we're waiting for like this gentle reconciliation to happen right like reconciliation will happen and we'll all live peacefully and we'll all be happy and it's just like (laughs) sure you know that's really convenient for the settler (laughs) Mm -hmm. to, to decide that to decide that like vengeance shouldn't come through violence like who does that serve exactly it's not that i love violence because i don't but like when we're thinking realistically about power imbalance and struggle and what it means to say like oh i don't think you should find your healing through violence like Mm -hmm. that's that's really beneficial when you've when you have established your position in society as a settler through violence even if you didn't enact it individually you know
0: yeah, and, and I mean, sometimes it's not even violence. I remember that there were protests across, uh, like CP Rail transit oh, yeah. lines. So, like, there were a bunch of indigenous communities who were protesting the use of land. They wanted their land back, and also they were trying to prove a point. So they disrupted train lines in Canada. And I remember that for like the first twenty-four to forty-eight hours, people were kind of okay with it. They were like, "Yeah, it's their right to protest. It's disruptive, but whatever." And then it got drawn out, and all of a sudden. people were like, okay, I think they've made their point. Like, this is actually really starting to affect economic trade and stuff. And it's just like, yes, that is literally the point. They are trying to make you care because your words are empty. And action is the only thing that will actually make settlers pay attention.
1: Well, and those protests ended up being met with the violence of the state through police action.
0: Yeah, they got arrested.
1: Yeah. And it's like, I don't know what people think protest is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's baffling. <laughs>
1: it is baffling. And it's interesting how, you know, we have these these undisruptible things like the supply chain, right? That's the language mm-hmm. that always gets used. Oh, you know, the protest is fine, but now it's disrupting the supply chain. Well, you know what we've learned through the pandemic? Everything disrupts the supply chain, it turns sure. out. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> I just think I think it's interesting to see this vision of reconciliation that a lot of Canadians have, I think, that is not decolonial. It's like, Mm -hmm. hopefully, one day, things will change enough that I won't have to hear about this anymore. Like, I think that's the reconciliation that most Canadians are looking for. If, Mm -hmm. you know, if we look at the sort of actions of commerce and the state and how we actually behave when confronted by protest, and I just think, I mean, a film like this really – challenges the notion that that settlers are going to get out of this whole thing scot-free
0: <laughs> yeah it's interesting because we are so immersed in ayla's world and well i do think that, that it's probably an experience that is pretty far removed from a lot of us and us meaning you and me and other settlers in canada it makes sense right like mm-hmm. it's not hard to relate to ayla Mm-mm. it's not hard to understand what her motivations are like I find that Jeff Barnaby is really, really good at helping dumb, dumb white people empathize and understand the situation of Indigenous people. And I don't know if it's partially that his characters feel very real. Like Ayla feels so fully formed to me. Yeah. And she is played by Devery Jacobs, who Brenna, we have talked about because yes. she is now on Reservation Dogs, mm-hmm. the FX series. And folks, we will be checking in on season two in yes. the year. Or so.
1: So excited. So excited.
0: But like, it's interesting to me how genre almost makes this go down a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about the catharsis of vengeance, but also just like the heist is exciting. And Barnaby is so stylish. Like there's the sequence where she is dealing drugs. She's wearing a gas mask at this party. And we get to see she's dipping all of these cannabis joints using, like, different kinds of paints, like, depending on how forgetful her audience wants to be. Yeah. And so just stylish and engaging. Like, you almost forget that you're being sold a message by Barnaby that you need to be paying attention to because you get lost up in her world.
1: We haven't mentioned that the heist takes place on Halloween as well. So the Mm -hmm. kids are dressed in costumes. And in the aftermath, there's this scene where we see Ayla moving around her kitchen and she's spun the mask around so it's on the back of her head. And Mm -hmm. Ayla's costume is of this old lady. Um, And so she's draped in all this fabric and she's got the mask on the back of her head as she moves around the kitchen. And it's so otherworldly. It's almost like something out of like – you know, if you if you had like a grimdark Miyazaki film, the way, the way she represents in this kind of ghost costume, right. and I just found yeah, I found all of that really really compelling.
0: Well, and even like if you want to go deep into a thematics piece, it feels like she's. Almost like emerging into a new identity, Mm -hmm. right? Like she's sort of split herself. There's the past and the present, and who she is now. Because by this point, yeah, she's had her hair shorn. She's in full face makeup, and she looks like a warrior, but also kind of like a ghost. And you very much get the impression like she is no longer the girl she was at the beginning of the film. She's coming into her own, but also changing. Not always for the better. And like, she's still got a bunch of really horrible experiences to go through. But like, at the beginning of the film, she's very much a girl Mm -hmm. and she has experienced horrible things. And then by the end of the film, you feel like, oh, this has been her coming of age moment. She's not okay, but she has kind of found out who she wants to be and how she will move through the world. Mm -hmm. A little bit of a question mark there because I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but. It feels like a really satisfying journey, even though it's only been a couple of days.
1: Well, I think part of the satisfaction in her character is that it's not something we see very often. Can I talk about the Ela test?
0: Yes, you may.
1: Okay. So we all know the Bechdel test, right? So Bechdel test is kind of like the lowest possible bar for women's representation in film. It's like, <laughs> are there two female characters? Do they have a conversation with each other? And is it about something other than a man? Yep. <laughs> and one of the most depressing things is that however far out we are from the Bechdel test being established, maybe 15 years, maybe more, it still uh, is rare. <laughs>
0: yeah, surprising number of films do not pass. <laughs>
1: yeah. And so Ali Nadi, who's an Anishnabe writer, um, she created something after watching this film that she calls the Ayla test, because she was quite struck by how significant a move away from the norm, the character of Ayla is in film. And so the Ayla test asks us to ask about a film, is there an indigenous or Aboriginal woman who is the main character? Mm -hmm. Does she not fall in love with a white man? And does she not end up raped or murdered at any point in the story? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, and I think about other films that we've looked at, there've been few (laughs) that Mm -hmm. have like indigenous women representation, but I think about something like Fire Song, where, yeah, unfortunately, like as interesting as those characters were, we do end up with with rape and murder as like central focal points of the journeys of the female characters in that story. Mm-hmm. And so there's something really wonderful about Ayla's agency over her own life within her own contexts. That is, yeah, like yes, it's rooted in vengeance, but it's also rooted in this like. The fact that she is actually a fully fleshed character. hmm Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, there's so many aspects of this film that really work for me. Like, I do find the pacing a little bit uneven. Even though it's a short film, it sort of feels like it goes in fits and stops. Mm-hmm. So it's an unconventionally plotted film in that regard. Even though, yeah, we do have a very traditional, you know, a heist. We've got a big climactic murder sequence and so on. But... I find that when I think about the film, I've seen it a couple times now, there's certain key sort of visual signifiers like Joseph's determination that he wants to go and collect a boat to go out on the water, even though he's told you're not allowed to go out there, you're not allowed to have a boat this time of year, there's no fish and it's, I don't know, there's a lot of kind of striking moments and they do feel very explicitly rooted in like indigenous culture like i love that juji is basically a child trickster Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i just think that this is such a good gateway film for people because there's a lot of complexity to both the characters as well as the historical events like if you want to you can dig into the film you can do the research on the indian act which ps folks is still in effect to this day it's Mm -hmm. changed a little bit but it's still very much like how do we identify what Indigenous people is? And you're like, oh, it's kind of terrible that we still need to have this. And
1: yeah, I mean the Indian Act is so fraught because in addition to being this controlling document, it's also the only legislation that sets out the settler state's responsibility to indigenous communities. So it's mm-hmm. like, uh, well, we gotta replace it with something. Like we gotta replace it with something that spells out, like, you know, Reparations and land back, but maybe that's not coming. Um, I was thinking while you were talking, Joe, about how important language is in the film. Mm-hmm. You know, you said off the top when you we were talking about residential schools that oftentimes the goal was to was to strip and remove Indigenous language to, to right. make it lose its power. Mm. And that's important. I do love that so many characters in this film speak to each other in Míkmaq language, and the fact that. We get this sense that because Ayla has been able to protect herself from the school, she has retained her language. And so when her father comes out of prison, they speak to each other. Um, it's really beautiful. And I think that it's sort of central to the decolonial message of the film is that like, it's not just about kind of retaking the space with violence, although that is part of it, but mm-hmm. also these significant cultural components like story, like ghosts and like language
0: so we do get to see anna who is ayla's mother who dies by suicide like very very early in the film she she has like visions of her as Mm -hmm. well as flashbacks to their interactions and so there's a a piece in cleo called moving with the dead and rhymes for young ghouls by taylor sanchez guzman and there's a piece in there about how anna remains as not just a character in the narrative so that she can you know like engage with ayla and sort of i guess provide additional depth and character development and stuff but to me and also guzman (laughs) you know what i'll credit guzman to (laughs) guzman um this is an example of how like indigenous storytelling and like almost oral traditions get to stay in place and uh, we haven't actually mentioned there's also an animated sequence in this film mm. that is very much an oral tradition in terms of like how the community gets harmed and sort of ends up devouring itself like it's partially about generational trauma but also how we process that grief and I think both of these visual examples of storytelling is really not just reflective of Barnaby's approach, but also in helping the film to be kind of like visually distinct.
1: Yeah, I agree completely. I love that sequence. I love the scene in the graveyard. There's this moment where where the ghost vision of Anna says, you know, you never come to see me anymore. And Ayla says, I don't need to be here to see you. Like she's mm-hmm. she permeates all the space of the film. And we also see Tyler in that sequence. And there's this interesting like, The ways in which she can see and communicate with her mother, but Tyler always remains, like, beyond arm's reach that I found really powerful, too. Like, Mm -hmm. there's just so much going on in the film visually that's asking us to really think about, you know, realities and, um, and what it means to, like, exist in space alongside ghosts and trauma mm-hmm. in the past. And I just, yeah, I I really, I mean, it feels weird to say like, I really enjoyed this film.
0: I know, it's a hard film. <laughs>
1: it's a hard film, but it's an effective film. It's a powerful film. And mm-hmm. I think it's the kind of film that should make us ask different kinds of questions about how we move through this relationship decolonization and what it is that as settlers we expect to happen. Like I really think, you know, what does it mean to seek to reconcile when mm-hmm. there's all of this trauma under the surface? Um yeah, I just think Barnaby's really effective at it and I'm so sad that we will have no more Barnaby films.
0: I know. Yeah. And folks, if you If you feel like you have recognized the name, but you haven't seen Rhymes for Young Ghouls, his uh, successive film after this, which also takes place on the fictional reserve, uh, is Blood Quantum. And if you enjoyed this and you're a little more comfortable with gore, I would really encourage folks to check out Blood Quantum because it is about a zombie apocalypse Mm -hmm. in which indigenous people are exempt from gore becoming infected and they become as a result like more <laughs> more commodified or or newly commodified in different ways it's really fascinating and it also feels like a bit of a, a step up in terms of his style of filmmaking mm-hmm. if you liked his visual approaches in this film he really amplifies it but that's a, a similarly challenging confronting and yet somehow also entertaining an educational film and i'm in full agreement with you, Brenna, like when you sent me the message that Barnaby had died, you were the one who actually told me before I saw it on social media. And it just immediately was like, well, F my life. We just lost <laughs> such an important storyteller. Yes. And like Canadian, Canadian storyteller to boot.
1: Yeah, it's true. There's there's so few people doing this kind of work and there's so few there's so few names that can get financed to do this kind right. of work, right? Which yeah. is which is part of it. Like Barnaby's track record made made it possible to tell this kind of story, and I, mm-hmm. I think that's going to be a huge loss. I'm um, also, I don't know. For me, his death comes at this moment with like, you know, we have Reservation Dogs breaking big. We have Rutherford Falls making all of this splash. We have
0: and then getting canceled.
1: Yeah, I know. I know. Um, <laughs> but we have all this splash around something like. Blood Quantum, we have, you know, big blockbuster type stories emerging. And for him to pass from cancer at 46, just on the cusp of this kind of moment, Mm -hmm. it just seems like woefully unfair. I also think, you know, another story – if folks like this vibe, I think be remiss not to mention which something we've talked about on the show before, which is Marrow Thieves, mm-hmm. um, because very much a similar kind of way of using genre to tell hard truths, mm-hmm. which I, I very much appreciate.
0: Yeah, folks, go back and listen to that episode. It was one of our uh, book club picks.
1: They tell us we're getting an adaptation of that one day, Joe. They tell us.
0: I mean, I just keep waiting. <laughs> just keep waiting. Like, where is it?
1: <laughs> really? That's There's a film? Like, oh, my God. Can you imagine if Jeff Barnaby had been in charge of that adaptation?
0: Uh, Brenna, don't do that to me. <laughs> Sorry.
1: Sorry. <laughs> Sad note for our first episode back where we're so energized.
0: <laughs> there we go. Jasper. Yes, we're, we're so rested.
1: <laughs> Yay. <laughs>
0: uh, um... Okay, so I won't lie. I have the bingo card open. Yeah. I, I don't know that this is a worthwhile enterprise. I looked at the board and I was like, I can pick out one or two, but yeah, this isn't this isn't adhering to cliche and no. it's not formulaic. And I don't mean that in a negative, disparaging way. It's just like. This is really doing something different from most of our texts, and it feels almost belittling to play YA bingo with it.
1: Well, I agree, too. Like, this doesn't seem like a place where we really want, like, a bingo square for dead family. Like, let's not this week. (laughs) Let's
0: just not. Let's not. (laughs) Well... Brenna, it also feels a little bit trite to be like, okay, well, let's end the show and invite people yeah. to reach out to talk about things like colonial violence, which is a joke you just made, and I cut it out, and now I'm replicating it instead. <laughs> I think my I life. would more encourage people to really look at this as a conversation. Like, I would yeah. love to hear from people. If you identify as Indigenous, I would love to know your relationship to this film. Did we miss really obvious things that you think warrant further discussion or or being shouted out if you are a settler do you watch this movie do you understand the nuance do you wanna research your own uh relationship with indigeneity and like we know that residential schools were not just a canadian or american thing like this is a colonial practice it happened all over the world do you know your own history
1: i think that's a really fair place to start the conversation and you know as always joe and i are always looking for recommendations for more indigenous Mm -hmm. texts we try to keep our ear out in particular for these kinds of stories so if you have one that you think we should have done on the show in some capacity yeah let us know yeah so if you want to find us uh joe i feel weird we're recording this at the end of december and -hmm. it's going to come out in the beginning of january and i feel like there's no guarantees that twitter will still exist by then but even so (laughs) I'm gonna say <laughs> you can find us on Twitter at HKHSPod Pod or on the hashtag HKHSPod, Pod. Uh, or you can email us HKHSpod at gmail.com. That one we know will still be around.
0: Yes, that one will be, be around. And brenna and I technically do have like Instagram accounts where sometimes you folks do reach out to us. So uh yes, if the <laughs> if the little bird <laughs> app goes bust, feel free to reach <laughs> out on other social media i could be reached at b stole my remote and that's the letter b
1: and i'm at brenna c gray and that's gray with an a uh i hope that in january you'll be listening to this and you'll be like oh there was a hostile takeover and now it's a publicly owned utility and uh it's fine you guys yeah. were, you guys were overreacting
0: yeah we shot elon musk in a tesla <laughs> into the sun and things are better now
1: yay oh that's that would be a true christmas miracle
0: <laughs> it's my it's my christmas wish and my New Year's resolution. <laughs>
1: We really are changing gears next week with a trip into a text that Joe has been trying to get me to watch for a million years until I reminded him he could just program it and then I would have to. (laughs) And it is Adventures in Babysitting. So it could not be more of a head snap, but that's where Mm -hmm. we're heading next week.
0: Yeah, light and fluffy, but also all about how suburbia is afraid of the big city.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, there's some, there's some resonance. And, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so welcome back to a new year of HKHS pod. Let's hope it's a better one. And mm. until next time, I will see you on the page.
0: And I will see you on the screen. Yeah, it's it's interesting, if only because... Where do I want to go with this? <laughs> okay. I close it?
1: Yeah, I do, but it just feels weird to switch gears to... <laughs> Like, if you want to talk to us about colonial violence, you can find us on, you know what I mean?